read this projector now. I'd like to start off with a little story this morning. The year was 2008. Shortly after I graduated from college, I found myself in my first apartment, at my first job out of school, leading worship at a small church and helping out with the teen ministry there, and otherwise not knowing anybody in my area. One day I was on the phone with my mom, and she gave me the contact number of another local pastor that they knew. Soon enough, I had arranged to have dinner at this family's house, and from the moment I stepped into their home, I felt a sense of comfort, of familiarity, maybe a little bit of belonging. Why, you might ask? Was it because they were Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? No, the answer is actually a little less spiritual than that. They were Chinese. This was the pastor of my parents' church when they, went, when they lived in New York City. And now he was pastoring a Chinese church in the same town that I lived in. From the moment I stepped into their home, took off my shoes, I was confronted by familiar aromas, familiar foods, familiar mannerisms. I even heard a familiar dialect of Chinese that I recognized. I felt at home because I had stepped into a culture that was close to mine. So what is culture? I've done some research into this term, and here are some of the definitions I found from both Christian and non-Christian sources. Culture is the characteristics and knowledge of a particular group of people encompassing language, religion, cuisine, social habits, music, and arts. Culture is the growth of a group identity fostered by social patterns unique to the group. Culture can be defined as shared characteristics, values, behaviors, beliefs, attitudes, etc and learn tendencies or patterns of a group that are transferred from one generation to the next and can adapt slowly over time. Culture is the man-made part of the environment. Culture is anything that humans produce when they interact with each other and with God's creation. These definitions have a lot in common. All of them are centered around a group of people and all reference a sense of group identity in some way. I particularly like this last one. Culture is anything that humans produce when they interact with each other and with God's creation. That's from a book called Every Square Inch, An Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians. In this book, Bruce Riley Ashford writes, when we interact with each other and God's creation, we cultivate the ground, produce artifacts, build institutions, form worldviews, and participate in religions. We produce culture, and at the same time, our cultural context shapes us, affecting who we are, what we think and do, and how we feel. So let's think about our culture today. In any culture, you're going to, you're going to have people and figures that are iconic or instantly recognizable. 
In America, for example, we have icons such as George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr., Elvis Presley, even fictional characters like Superman or Batman. You have locations that have strong associations such as Las Vegas and Washington, D.C. You have cultural foods such as apple pie, hamburgers, hot dogs, cultural rules and etiquette such as tipping at a restaurant, shaking hands when greeting somebody, and not asking about someone's salary. These are just a few examples of things we would generally be familiar with as Americans. But then there's also many other layers of culture. Take just New England, for example. You have all the major sports teams. You have Lexington, Massachusetts, and the shot heard around the world. Um, candle pin bowling. And ice cream, apparently. I found a study years ago that found that New England leads the United States in ice cream consumption. So maybe some of you can relate to that. Like an onion, we can keep peeling back layers and layers of culture as it defines smaller and smaller groups of people. What's the culture of southern New Hampshire like? What's the culture of my church? What's the culture of my neighborhood? What's the culture of my immediate family? Within each culture or subculture, there may be expectations that can influence your life. Expectations such as, what kind of grades should I get? Who should I be friends with? Should I pursue higher education? What kind of jobs should I look for? When should I move out of my parents' house? Who should I get married to? What should I think about debt? Should I be chasing the American dream? These cultural expectations can affect our feeling of worth and, and sense of belonging based on whether or not we're living up to them. So recognizing that every time you draw a circle around a group of people, the culture changes a little bit, we have to ask, what does culture have to do with our vision this year of loving like Jesus? Well, for one, Jesus was born into a culture. He was born as a Jewish male, and by all accounts, followed many of the cultural customs of his time. But did he always stay in his lane as far as Jewish customs and expectations? Or did he intentionally reach across cultures? In order to love like Jesus, we have to know how he handled cultural boundaries. So this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 4. Many of you will know this passage as the woman of the well, at the well or the Samaritan woman. And if you're familiar with the narrative or if you paid attention to Ricky the Rat just a few minutes ago, you might already know that Jesus did indeed cross cultural boundaries. So through our study today of John 4, we are going to discover how Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others. As we jump into the text of John 4, let's keep this overarching question in mind. How did Jesus cross cultural boundaries? Before we do that, let's pray. Dear Father, we, I thank you for 
the opportunity to open your word today. I pray that you would speak to us through it. And through me, I pray that you would exalt yourself. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. The first way that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries was he purposely journeyed through Samaria. So what's happening here is that Jesus, after ministering in Jerusalem, was attracting a lot of attention from the Pharisees. He might have even moved up on their watch list over John the Baptist because his disciples were baptizing more people than John's were. At this point, it's not yet time for a confrontation with the Pharisees. So Jesus decides to return to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. In order to understand why this point even matters, we need to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. After Solomon's reign as king of Israel, the nation was split into the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which had 10 tribes, was known as Israel, while the southern kingdom, which had two tribes, was known as Judah. Later on, Omri, the king of the northern kingdom, built a city called Samaria, which he made the capital of the northern kingdom. The whole northern area eventually became known as Samaria. When the Assyrians came and attacked and captured Samaria, they deported most of the Israelites back to Assyria and brought in foreigners to populate the area. Those Israelites who were left in Samaria ended up intermarrying with those foreigners, breaking God's commands and adopting a sort of eclectic mix of idolatry and Jewish worship. After the exile, returning Jews considered Samaritans unclean or half-breeds and did not associate with them. The bad blood between Jews and Samaritans continued for centuries, even to the point where Samaritans ended up building a rival temple on a different mount than the Jewish one in Jerusalem. One important fact to note here is that the Samaritans only viewed the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, as their Bible. They did not include any of the other Hebrew books that the Jews did. We'll see why this is important later. Now, there's some discussion among commentators about why Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Was it a divine appointment or just geographically the shortest route to Galilee? Well, what we do know is that there is an alternate route that avoids Samaritan territory. So I'm going to try to keep this still here. So what they could do, the more pious or maybe bigoted Jews who wanted to stay away from anything unclean, they would go cross the Jordan River, go up north, cross the Jordan River again into Galilee, thus avoiding Samaria completely. And we know that Jesus did not take this route. So we can at least say this. 
that Jesus was not trying to be the poster child of a clean and undefiled Jew. So either he was focused on taking the most logical and shortest route to Galilee, or he was led through Samaria by divine appointment. And the answer is probably both. Verse 5, so he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jacob's well is a well-known landmark even to this day. It was located about half a mile from Sychar. It was also very near where Jacob was buried. The well was over 100 feet deep at the time and fed by springs of water, which they called living springs. The sixth hour refers most likely to noontime, which was the hottest part of the day. So they reached Jacob's well around noon after a grueling hike. I looked at this area on Google Maps with the terrain on, and it is not a flat hike. It is mountainous, or at least very hilly, with many ups and downs. So here we are reminded of Jesus' humanity, as it says he was wearied from his journey. Jesus was in need of physical rest, of water and food. Yet as many of you know the story, he used his physical needs as an opportunity to meet the spiritual needs of others. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The second way that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries was that he sent his disciples to buy Samaritan food. We see from verse 8 that Jesus apparently wasn't concerned about buying food from Samaritans, something stricter Jews would be unwilling to do. Either he was creating space for his conversation with the Samaritan woman, or he was teaching his disciples to cross cultural boundaries themselves, or both. The third way Jesus crossed cultural boundaries was that he spoke to a Samaritan woman and asked for a drink. Now you have to think that this sentence to a Jewish reader of the day or to anyone who was familiar with the Jewish-Samaritan relationship, this would have been some radical stuff. A woman from Samaria, that's two strikes already, came to draw water. But not only is it a woman from Samaria, it is a woman from Samaria coming to draw water, apparently by herself, at noon, a time when no one else was drawing water. There were other springs closer to Sychar, and women usually drew water in the evening. But this woman chose to come at noon to this faraway well, which suggests that she did not have a good public reputation. She was coming at this time and to this location to avoid shame and ridicule. So three strikes, a woman, a Samaritan, and a person of ill repute. But Jesus speaks to her and requests a drink. I don't think it's because he's that desperate for water. In fact, we never actually learn whether he got his drink or not. More likely, Jesus spoke to her because he saw 
her need. Jesus isn't looking at her through the lens of a Jew. He doesn't see the three cultural strikes against her. He sees a woman who is hurting, outcast, and has no hope of ever being spiritually satisfied. And he loves her as she is. That's why Jesus crossed this cultural boundary. Verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The reaction from the Samaritan woman is what anyone would expect. The phrase, for Jews have no dealings with uh, Samaritans, most likely means literally that Jews do not use the dishes that Samaritans have used. So she's saying, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink when we're not even supposed to share water pots? Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The fourth way Jesus crossed cultural boundaries is that he offered the Samaritan woman living water. The gift of God in verse 10 most likely refers to eternal life, but it could also mean the Torah. Either way, the focus of Jesus' answer is on who is asking. If you knew who is asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The phrase living water, remember, has that double meaning. First, living water was the term they used to describe a spring that had fresh, running water, as opposed to a cistern or something more stagnant. But the Old Testament also refers to living water as a metaphor for God and the life that he gives. For example, Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So let's see which of the two meanings the Samaritan woman chose to take. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus makes the distinction between the need for physical water and the need for spiritual water, which is the one he is offering. The Samaritan woman has all the means to meet her physical needs of water, she has her water pot there. The well is right there. But she does not have the means to meet her spiritual need for living water. The water that Jesus offered is a spiritual satisfaction that comes from God's salvation. As Isaiah writes, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 
Life-giving water is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. Though it might be understandable if Samaritans, who remember only recognize the Pentateuch, would be less familiar with it. In the bigger picture, though, it's hard to imagine that a Jewish rabbi would offer salvation to a Samaritan woman. So as Jesus crossed cultural boundaries to offer her this living water, it seems natural that she might be a little confused or skeptical about what he was referring to. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Though this seems like an abrupt shift in the conversation, it's actually right in line with the need that Jesus is seeking to meet. Jesus' intent in bringing up her past husbands isn't to shame her. Instead, he wants to help her understand the nature of the gift he is offering. What was she ultimately searching for with so many husbands? And why hasn't she found it yet? Here, Jesus demonstrates a knowledge of her life that he could only know through divine means, and she recognizes it. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The fifth way that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries is that he established true worship that transcends cultures. You worship what you do not know. Jesus isn't necessarily attacking the Samaritan's sincerity, but more their lack of knowledge. Remember, they only recognize the Pentateuch, and Jerusalem is not explicitly mentioned in the Pentateuch. So when the Samaritans wanted to build their rival temple, they chose Mount Gerizim as the site, and that contributed to their long history of conflict with the Jews. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. To be clear, true worship has always existed. Psalm 51 is an example of this. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. True worship in spirit and truth has always existed. Yet Jesus was indicating here that an hour is coming when true worship would no longer be prescribed to a certain temple, a certain part of the world, 
to a certain culture. There's a lot more that we can unpack about worshiping in spirit and truth, but for our purposes and focus today, we need to recognize that Jesus is setting a new paradigm of worship which transcends cultures and critically is open to all cultures. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The sixth way that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries was that he revealed his identity to the Samaritan woman. This is a big deal that Jesus would reveal that he is the Messiah in this setting. D.A. Carson writes, it is entirely in line with this gospel that Jesus should unambiguously declare himself to be the Messiah to a Samaritan, but not to his own people. For many Jews, the title Messiah carried so much political and military baggage that his self-disclosure in such settings necessarily had to be more subdued and subtle. Verse 27, at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you had not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Two things are going on here. The Samaritan woman goes back to Sychar and excitedly tells the people, the, the same people she's been avoiding, about Jesus and how he told her all the things she ever did. There was no more hiding or covering up her sin in shame just pure excitement that he could be the Messiah. Back at the well, Jesus is demonstrating something important. In crossing cultural boundaries for others, he has put his physical needs as secondary. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was able to let go of some physical things, in order to gain the spiritual satisfaction of doing God's will. Jesus was also opening his disciples' eyes to the harvest, which is at hand. 
not only immediately as the Samaritans are coming out to see him, but also moving forward into a new age where the message of the gospel would go to all cultures and all peoples of the world. Verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of the city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now believe, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The seventh way that Jesus crossed cultural boundaries was that he stayed with the Samaritans for two days and met their spiritual needs. Spending two days with the Samaritans meant a lot more than just finding a place to stay for the night and buying food when necessary. In all likelihood, this meant that Jesus and his disciples were living and mingling with the Samaritans, sitting under Jesus' teaching, having discussions, sharing meals, eating from the same dishes. Unheard of for Jews and Samaritans to have that kind of fellowship. Yet it was the Samaritans who invited Jesus, and they were the ones to come to the conclusion that he was the Savior of the world. John MacArthur says this, if the Jews had come to the conclusion that he was the Savior, they would have been glad to say he is the Savior of Israel. They would have been far more reluctant to say he is the Savior of the world. And to quote Carson again, it was appropriate that the title Savior of the world should be applied to Jesus in the context of ministry to Samaritans, representing the first cross-cultural evangelism undertaken by Jesus himself and issuing a pattern to be followed by the church. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So let's review. How did Jesus cross cultural boundaries? First, he purposely journeyed through Samaria. Number two, he sent his disciples to buy Samaritan food. Three, he spoke to a Samaritan woman and asked for a drink. Four, he offered the Samaritan woman living water. Five, he established true worship that transcends cultures. Six, he revealed his identity to the Samaritan woman. And seven, he stayed with the Samaritans for two days and met their spiritual needs. So now that we've seen how Jesus crossed cultural boundaries in John chapter 4, let's ask, what motivated Jesus to cross these cultural boundaries? Well, if we turn back just one chapter into John 3, verse 16 and 17, we will see what motivated Jesus to cross cultural boundaries. In his conversation with Nicodemus, a respected and educated Jewish Pharisee, Jesus explained, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others. But then let me ask you this. Jesus, fully human, was a Jew in terms of cultural identity. What, was, what is Jesus fully divine? What is his cultural identity? It's not Jewish. It's true that God essentially created and dictated most aspects of Jewish life and therefore culture. But is it accurate to say that God is Jewish? Let me put it this way. Jewish culture belongs to God more so than any other culture in the world. But does God belong solely to Jewish culture? Jewish culture belongs to God, but God does not belong to Jewish culture. If he did, he would be limited by Jewish culture. He would be constrained by the rules and regulations he set forth to the Israelites. But we know that God is not constrained by anything except for his nature as immutable God, which is not any kind of restraint. And we also just saw that Jesus did not let being a Jew constrain him culturally. So what I'm trying to say is this. Jesus crossed cultural boundaries for others because he loves the world. But he also crossed cultural boundaries because Jesus, fully divine, is above all cultures, all human cultures. There are no cultural rules or expectations that could constrain him could you imagine walking up to Jesus in church today and saying, you can't dress like that? You can't raise your hands in worship? Or you can't play that instrument? Which brings us to now, today, and in this room. Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others. So what does it mean for us? So... Loving like Jesus will move us outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others. Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others, so loving like Jesus will move us outside of our cultural norms to meet the needs of others. Why should we move outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others? Well, because Jesus did is an obvious answer. The example that we see here in John 4 shows us that there is a harvest that exists outside of our culture. It might lie outside of our comfort zones. It might cause us to look at others and say, or it might cause others to look at us and say, what are you doing talking to that person? Or what are you doing going to that place? Like the scripture reading this morning, Peter what are you doing going to the house of uncircumcised men and eating with them? Reaching this harvest of souls might mean you going where none of your friends are willing to go to meet someone's need. We should also move outside of our cultural norms to meet the needs of others because we know which cultures will be represented in heaven. We know which cultures will be represented in heaven. Can you take a guess? 
all of them. Revelation 7, 9, and 10 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is no culture that Jesus does not offer living water to. There is none that is too far gone that he does not extend his gift of grace. That ought to make us consider how we view our culture in relation to others. It ought to make us consider maybe there are things in our culture, rules, traditions, expectations, in our Christian culture, in our church culture, in our family's culture, that might be hindering us from reaching the needs of those around us. Could a Jew, back in Jesus' time, following the customs of the day, could that Jew have reached Samaritans? Jesus had to break many cultural norms to meet the needs of the Samaritans. How many are we willing to break to meet the needs of those around us? This year, I am calling us to examine our cultures, your culture, my culture, our church culture. We need to examine ourselves and see if we can more accurately love like Jesus by moving outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others. Let's flip the script for a second and look at ourselves. Maybe you've built your life around your version of the American dream, and you've got a checklist. House, car, kids, boat, net worth, a standard of living. You've got a checklist that you've been living by as your cultural Bible and serving. How would Jesus have to cross cultural boundaries into your life to meet your need? Maybe you have a past like the Samaritan woman, and you're afraid of what people in this church would think if they found out. How would Jesus have to cross cultural boundaries into your life and meet your need? Maybe you can't find time for God or your family or church or hanging out with other believers. How would Jesus have to cross cultural boundaries to reach into your life and meet your need? Maybe you're struggling against the culture you've grown up in. Or maybe you love the culture that you've grown up with and are now struggling with change. How would Jesus have to reach into your life, crossing cultural boundaries to meet your need? Maybe you're looking at our church and thinking, how are we going to move outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 2022, as we seek to move outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others, we aim to, first, in the first six months, conduct two demographic surveys, one of our local community and one of our church community. We need to know what our local community looks like. Who's in our community? How old are they? 
What do they do? Are they educated? Are they married? Do they have families, etc.? And a note on this, we are not going to physically do the survey to our community. This information is on, uh, available publicly, so we will obtain the information and analyze it. But we also need to know what our church looks like. Does our church demographic reflect our community demographic? Are there neglected demographics in our church? These are things we intend to find out this year. Secondly, during the year, identify and engage with at least one demographic in our local community that our church has not been intentionally serving. Out of the demographic survey of our local community, we want to identify at least one demographic that we can serve. I'll give you an example of something that's already on our radar. The Southern New Hampshire Rescue Mission is in the process of setting up a 25-bed women's shelter in Nashua. Maybe that is a demographic that we can begin serving this year. And third, during the year, identify and redirect resources toward the needs of one underserved demographic in our church. Out of the church demographic survey, we want to identify at least one underserved demographic in our church, meet with them, and redirect ministry resources toward them. And when I say resources, it doesn't necessarily mean money, but it's going to take, it's going to cause us to look at who's in our church, what our ministries are doing, and work toward aligning them to meet the spiritual needs of our body. Maybe this morning, God is speaking to you about culture. You're thinking about how Jesus crossed cultural boundaries. You're thinking about your own culture and the implications of moving outside of your cultural norms. Maybe you're taking all of this in and it, it unsettles you. Maybe it excites you. Maybe you want to go deeper but don't know where to start. Let me leave you with this from John chapter 7. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. If you don't know Jesus this morning, know that he has crossed the boundaries of your life to meet your need. Like the Samaritan woman, there is no cultural boundary that Jesus has not already crossed for you. If you do know Jesus this morning, remember that Jesus has lovingly crossed your cultural boundaries and met your need. Praise him for what he has done in you. Praise him because he gave you the Holy Spirit who is like a river of living water flowing out of your heart able to reach all peoples and cultures with the good news of the gospel. He will do that in you and through you. So how do we love like Jesus? 
When Jesus said to his disciples, we're going to Samaria, what did they do? They followed him to Samaria. When Jesus said, go and buy food from the Samaritans, what did they do? They went and bought food from the Samaritans. When Jesus said, we're staying in Samaria for two days, what did they do? They stayed there two days with Jesus. When Jesus said, there is a harvest that you will reap that you did not labor for, what did they do? They followed Jesus' lead, and he taught them how to love like he does. Jesus' love caused him to cross cultural boundaries for others. So loving like Jesus will move us outside our cultural norms to meet the needs of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could have this morning, looking into your word, seeing how Jesus crossed cultural boundaries for others. Thank you for doing that for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sin, rising again, conquering death, and meeting our need by giving us new life. Thank you that though we are often limited by our culture, you are free from those limitations. Help us to say, I'd rather have what you want. I'd rather have Jesus than anything my culture has if it's holding me back from loving you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.